Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And I'm Sarah. Sarah Sows is with us once again, this time to tell us all about the history of Harajuku street fashion. Yes. So the first thing to ask is, why are we talking about it on this podcast? Because it fucking rules. Um, (laughs) But also because... Also because not only does it draw a lot from vintage fashion directly and upcycling pieces into new fashions, but also it draws on a lot of historical fashion inspiration to create these new styles. And it's also a collectible. Is it really? True. Some of it, anyway. So the first question is, when is a fashion a collectible? When you collect it? Absolutely, but certain (laughs) fashions tend to lend themselves more towards being collectibles. Fair point. In the sense that there's a hobby of collecting them and a collector culture around them. So it can be a bit tricky to try to figure out what fashions are collectible and what aren't. Because really all fashion is collectible at some level. But you wouldn't think of just ordinary clothing shopping as participating in a collection. (laughs) True. So I think the difference is, are there dream items? And people have certain ideas of specific pieces. Not necessarily just, oh, I want something that looks a little bit like this, but I want this particular item. And I think that if a hobby of getting a lot of something has that sort of element of knowing specific pieces, or even if not specific pieces, then certain specific types of pieces, that sort of moves it more into the collectibles area than into just the I like wearing fashion area. Okay. This is just me making up my own definitions. I'm not sure <laughs> how you would draw the line for that. That makes a lot of sense what you're saying. I agree with yours. Yeah, I um, I actually hadn't given a lot of thought to like collectible fashion, but that that scans. Yes. So not all Harajuku street fashions are what I'd consider collectible in that sense. The trouble is, it's pretty difficult to figure out which ones are and which ones aren't because all of them sort of are, but some are more so than others, definitely. So, well, Harajuku is a neighborhood in Japan, in Tokyo, and much like a lot of other neighborhoods that are associated with subculture fashions, it was a fun, trendy area. A lot of young people hung out there. They still do. It's changed a little bit over the years. It's not quite as much of a center of alternative fashion as it once was. The same is true of places like Camden in London and St. Mark's Place in New York. So it's sort of like that. It's a neighborhood that was very strongly associated with alternative fashion. In this case, several different alternative fashions. It's also the place where if you go to Tokyo and you want to see an anime cafe or anything of that nature, it's probably in Harajuku. I see. It's a very fun area. It's definitely become a lot more commercialized and a lot more tourist-centered over the years. But it definitely still has some of that element of being a place where people experiment with fashion. Gotcha. So there's a bunch of different fashions that came about over the years there. Starting in the early 70s, in fact, so going back quite a ways, there were the original Harajuku street fashions, which are sort of what would be considered natural K and Otome K today. So they're Edwardian and vintage-inspired, longer hems, They sort of mirror the mainstream 70s fashion trends of that sort of romanticism, soft, long, flowing lines. The peasant blouses and what have you. Yeah, peasant blouses and what have you. And in fact, 
Gun Sachs, which is a Western brand that was very popular in the 70s, is one of the most popular brands for those styles. Okay, yeah. I'm not very fashion forward, but I actually do know Gunny Sachs is like a, a really popular collectible for a lot of people. Yeah, and for <laughs> these street fashions as well. And those street fashions are still around today. Ooh. They're still distinct fashions today. Although they're not as popular as they once were now that there's other fashions that have evolved out of them. There's also a strong connection with street snaps in fashion magazines. So the first of those was Olive magazine. So people would go to Harajuku and take pictures of what people were wearing on the streets. And that's how a lot of these fashions developed and spread. The people who were interested in them would read the magazines, do their own looks inspired by that, go to the area, and then be photographed themselves in turn. And so it continues. And there's also a connection even this early on to music. Nagomu Records was an indie music label at the time, and a lot of the same people who were appearing in Olive Magazine and wearing that style of those sort of soft romantic looks associated with the Nagomu Records bands, and it all sort of was this one big movement towards sort of more soft, flowing styles that were definitely longer, less form-fitting, and sort of trying to have a sort of soft romanticism, basically. And again, this is in the 70s, so that's not actually that different from Western fashion at the time. This just does it in a slightly different way, but the pieces are interchangeable in a lot of cases. Vivian Westwood also ended up coming to Japan at one point and was a huge influence in the Harajuku street fashion scene. Oh, wow. Yeah, and Vivian Westwood pieces, including one particular style of shoes, rocking horse shoes, are some of the most sought-after pieces in some of the street fashions we'll get to a little later. Ooh. So, even though it's a Harajuku fashion, all fashions are sort of interconnected in the 20th century and 21st century, and there's always been a strong international community associated with Harajuku street fashion. And it's persisted today and gotten even bigger. Nowadays, there's Harajuku fashion communities in pretty much every major city in the world. And soon, New Bedford. Yeah. You'd be surprised. There may be one there already. Oh, hell yeah. Let's go. I hope so. I want to meet them. So then there were a couple of other magazines that got in on the whole street snaps thing. Fruits, Kara, and Larme especially are the ones that were really influential. Hell yeah, Fruits. Raise your hand in the chat if you had a Fruits magazine. I was waiting for you to- I was just like, when's Fruits coming up? Because I know that one. <laughs> they weren't necessarily always representative of what people were actually wearing on the streets, though. Oh? Because the editors, especially for Fruits, specifically didn't feature the fashions that he didn't personally like. Oh. Oh, so it's a very personally curated collection, not necessarily representative of the general populace. So they're very useful for seeing what people were wearing on the streets of Harajuku at the time, but it's not necessarily a representative view of all of the different things people were wearing. And in fact, some of the styles that the editor of Fruits ignored the most are some of the ones that we're going to focus more on because those are the more historical ones. Uh-huh. Or they came so over time. So some of the other major styles that developed over time, there's decora, which is from the word decoration. Everything embellished, many accessories, many, many accessories, often in vivid rainbow colors, a lot of 80s inspiration, and usually a lot of actual 80s vintage pieces, and also things like stickers on the face, 
as many different hair clips as you can possibly fit in your bangs all at the same time, lots of plastic bracelets, often you'll see little collectible figurines or stuffed animals being incorporated into outfits all at once. Basically, how much stuff can you fit on your outfit and how vivid can it be while you're doing it? <laughs> yes. I think the closest Western comparison would be like if Lisa Frank paintings like came to life and became outfits. Yes, except with more layers of stuff and more so. So many layers. Layers upon layers upon layers. More rainbows. And then you get Fairy K, which is sort of like Decoro, but it's more pastel and it's got slightly less stuff. It's still a lot of stuff compared to anything else, but it doesn't tend to be quite as stuff on top of stuff on top of stuff. Every square inch of space has something on it as Decora. And again, there's a strong 80s influence there and a lot of vintage pieces are used. It's a little bit Lady Lovely Locks. It's extremely Lady Lovely Locks and I adore it. And then you've got Mori K, which is basically Forest Girl. So if you know about Cottagecore, it's not the same thing. It's overlapping, though, and a lot of the same pieces would work for both. Lots of layers, especially knits and lace, earth tones, stuff that looks like you can go and live in a cottage in the woods and just stroll through the forest all day. Lots of sepia. Lots of sepia, lots of moss green. It's a very naturalist vibe. Very natural. And then there's also Gyaru, which is complicated and has a bunch of different substyles and which I do not know enough about to give an accurate view of. <laughs> so those ones that we've talked about, they have certain pieces that might be more desirable, and fashions like Decora are sort of collectible fashions in that they're fashions of collections. You wear all of your figurines on your head <laughs> and all of your bracelets, so you're wearing your collections, but they're not necessarily as collectible in themselves, except in that they use a lot of vintage items and they use a lot of brightly colored items. And there are designers that cater to that aesthetic and specific brands that work for that aesthetic and make stuff for specifically for those styles. But there's a lot more thrifting and secondhand shops and putting together pieces from non-aimed-at-those-style brands. But anyway, back to the 70s. So... Over the course of the 70s, a new style begins to branch off that uses more Victorian inspiration, more volume in skirts, the skirts start to be more or less knee-length, which is shorter than they were before, and eventually it's sort of retroactively linked with a term that was being thrown around for some fictional characters at the time. And at this point, we need to talk about names and linguistics. Yeah. All right, yeah. I had a feeling this was going to come up. Let's unpack this. So, are you familiar with the concept of loanwords? I am. Yeah. English is almost 50% loanwords. <laughs> yes. So it's when a word from one language is taken into another language. Like the word tea and chai are basically some variation of those appear in pretty much every language that has those beverages. And they're linked to where the historical trade centers were that they got tea from. So some variant of those words appears in most languages and it's all very much linked back to trade routes. Sometimes, though, things change in translation. So one of the examples that I see a lot is the German word for cell phone, which is supposedly a loan word taken from English. And yet? The German word for cell phone is handy. <laughs> huh. Is it really? It is. Well, that is an English word. It is an English word. But 
I don't know that it means what they think it means in English necessarily. Certainly a cell phone would be considered something that is handy to have, but it's not really what they use it as. And there's plenty of opportunities for awkwardness in translation. A little bit, yeah. So something of the same sort happened in the 80s and 90s when a bunch of fairly young fictional characters in Japan started to be described using the word Lolita. Unfortunate. Now, it was not meant in a sexualized context. The term was just being used to describe young girls. It wasn't connected at all with the book, really. The name had gotten over there, and the context had sort of become separated in the process. So when the term was being used, no one was thinking of it in a sexualized manner. Unfortunately, when the fashions that were influenced by and became known by the name then spread back out of Japan, there's a really awkward state where there's this fashion that has a name that, when it was originally coined, wasn't a sexualized idea in the place it was coined, but is associated with that in places where it's spread to. So it causes a lot of awkwardness whenever anyone tries to explain the fashion. It was not meant in a sexualized way in the slightest when it was first associated with these fictional characters. And it was retroactively applied to this fashion movement that had already been going on for a decade at the time. Have they considered a different name? It's so baked in now, though. There have been many, many attempts to switch to a different name, but the trouble is it's already become such an entrenched part of the style. It's been the term since the 80s. And there's certainly been plenty of posts on forums saying we should all change the name. Uh, There was a bunch of people a while back who said we should use the term Rory instead, which has its own problems. Yeah, that's not going to be much better, I'm afraid. Exactly. And so basically the general consensus is that's what the fashion is known as. We know that it's not meant in a sexualized way, but generally people tend to avoid saying the name of the fashion when random people on the street ask them what they're wearing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would advocate for a push to just for like everyone not involved to just be less nasty. If someone says this is not like, please calm down. I just like a fancy dress. Then you should just accept that and go, okay, I'm going to do some Google information to figure out how this happened. And then you can educate yourself and not be gross at people who want to wear dresses. Or we could call it, like, Victorian doll fashion or something? That has its own problems. It's not specifically based on dolls. There are some doll influences, but it's not specifically based on dolls. And there's a whole doll subculture that has its own community. And there is some tensions and some unfortunate crossovers between the two. So that also has problems. There isn't really a good solution to that. But the fashion was actually partially popular because it was a non-sexualized fashion. It was longer, flowing, less form-fitting, and it was basically something that the people who were wearing it were wearing not because they thought it made them look attractive, but because it was a style that they personally liked. Yeah, a style for yourself rather than a style for other people to judge you by. Yeah, and it's a lot less revealing than a lot of other fashions that were popular moving forwards. So it was sort of a reaction against sexualized fashion, not a sexualized fashion in its own right, which just makes the whole name thing even worse. Yeah. Yeah. So 
at the moment we're talking about soft sort of romantic-y vintage-y stuff there's a lot of creams a lot of lighter tones so now we get to the point where goth comes in hell yeah yeah here we go <laughs> because here now we're in the 80s we're here everyone <laughs> oh yes yeah, the 80s goth time and there's a musical movement in japan called visual k hell yeah there is yes so there's a bunch of Visual K bands that start in the early 80s. One of the most influential is X-Japan, which is founded in 1982. Sort of based on speed and thrash metal. It draws on glam metal, but it really has its own aesthetic. A lot of androgyny, big, vivid, and or physically improbable hair. And just a lot of look. The band's slogan was psychedelic violence, crime of visual shock. Into it. <laughs> into it <laughs> and that is thought to have led to the name of the movement as visual k or visual style in general so they weren't the first one but they sort of were a really big influence they're still the biggest band that has ever come out of japan in terms of number of concerts sold out and they're still playing today hell yeah gonna go and get me some tickets they've toned down their look a little bit over time but definitely was hugely influential at first the combination of the androgyny and the physically improbable hair, and also the incorporation of a lot of elements of Western punk and later goth fashion, all sort of created this visual K style. There's a lot of debate about whether or not it's a fashion in of its own right, because there's a lot of variety between visual K bands. Get a couple of different visual K bands in the same room and they'll look totally different. But there's sort of a general look, and it has to do with really elaborate hair, Often androgyny, but not always. And honestly, I think that a lot of people see the hair and they think, oh, it's based on anime. Now, I have my own theory about this, and I don't have any evidence for this, but I think it's the other way around. There were definitely some manga in the 70s that very much based their characters on popular musicians of the day. And then, starting in the 80s, you start to see what we'd recognize as anime hair. So gravitationally improbable spiky stuff now the visual k bands at the time were doing that in real life and there was already this culture of drawing on musicians for influence in the characters in manga so there's also a few characters who look extraordinarily similar to visual k musicians so i think that the reason why anime hair is such a thing is actually visual k and again this is just a personal theory i've got no evidence on this besides timelines lining up nicely but it doesn't really seem all that far out of the line of probability to me. Sounds legit. I'm going to back you on that. I'm going to back you on that because I, I'm a huge fan of like 70s through 80s anime specifically. And just watching it evolve, I'm 100% behind you. I fight for this theory. I don't have to, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> There's one minor character in Rurani Kenshin who is basically the lead singer of X Japan and it is an identical look. Yeah, it's it's got to be, right? It feels so it feels correct. So, that's the 80s. So, Visual K is sort of doing its own thing. It's not connected to the burgeoning Lolita fashion movement at the time. They're very different in aesthetic. One is sort of soft and romantic and the other is very much not. But then we get to the 90s and a new Visual K band called Malice Miser. Yes. Yes. <laughs> So it starts off with a lot of very androgynous looks, lots of long, loose, drapey black stuff. But after the first singer leaves, it shifts to be very historically inspired. So it's a little less androgynous for most of the members, 
but one of the guitarists starts wearing Victorian-inspired dresses. Hell yeah. And he coins the term elegant gothic Lolita to describe his style, and that's actually where the name of the fashion comes from. So it had already been around for a couple of decades at this point. Oh, I didn't know it went back that far. Yeah, it goes back to the 70s for its roots. It doesn't look at all like how it looks now, of course, because things change over time, but there's a direct continuous line of the fashion. So this guitarist, Mana, has created the term elegant gothic Lolita to describe his style. It sort of retroactively spreads to the people who are using the same sort of shape of look and some of the same historical influences, and it sort of incorporates the more goth element of it with the more soft romantic side of the fashion. He also launches his own fashion brand, Moitier, which produces clothing based on his aesthetic, and the Gothic and Lolita Bible, which is the first magazine specifically for Lolita fashion. I used to want that so bad. <laughs> it also has sewing patterns because at this point there's still an emphasis on do-it-yourself in the fashion. Hell yeah. And there still is today, but nowhere near as much as there used to be. Let's bring it back. I want to bring it back. Come on, let's start it. Oh yes, absolutely. And there are still sewing magazines aimed at the fashion out there. The Otome no Sewing Magazine in particular is still running pretty strong and features new patterns of often decent quality, sometimes not so much. The last issue was not their greatest. <laughs> but anyway, so we've got these two distinct styles, but this is still largely in Japan aside from some music fans. And then we get to the 2000s. So now we've got the internet. And we've also got the novel Kamikaze Girls, written in 2002 by Novala Takamado, which is about a girl who is obsessed with the Lolita brand Baby the Stars Shine Bright, who meets a biker girl named Ichigo, and they go to the Baby the Stars Shine Bright store, meet the main designer, and the book is basically a showcase for the fashion at the time. And it is turned into a film in 2004, which is even more of a showcase for the fashion. All of the pieces that the main character wears become iconic and highly sought after, and it sort of defines the old-school look of Lolita. Solid color cotton dresses with Clooney lace trim, relatively small petticoats, so some volume, but not nearly as much volume as will come later, bloomers that peek out of the end of the skirt, and Vivian Westwood rocking horse shoes and other platform shoes. So at this point, it's still a lot of solids with lace. Eventually that changes, and it shifts to feature a lot of prints, especially border prints. So on the bottom of the skirt, there'll be some pattern. Each one gets a name. Some are descriptive. Some are not so much. Some are short. Some are exceptionally long. So we've got things like Cat's Tea Party. Three guesses what that shows. <laughs> Honey Cake, featuring breakfast and breakfast-related ephemera. The World's Most Adorable Dog and the World's Most Delicious Frappe, also known as the Pup in a Cup Dress. Yes! Aww. Funeral Procession of the Rose, Aria Blooming in the Twilight. The first part describes what it is. It's a funeral coach with a lot of roses, but then they add on more, because why not? Hell yeah. And some don't really describe what they're about at all. Milky Planet. Whales with bulbous heads are not delicious. I mean, yes, it's a whale print dress, but I don't know about the delicious part. <laughs> I mean, they're not wrong. They're not wrong. They're not delicious. <laughs> but I don't know how it describes just whales on a dress. The very helpfully named and very easy to search for original print. 
no. Okay, all right. Oh, no. Okay, all right. You're setting yourself up for SEO failure. That's the worst they could have done. <laughs> and Petit Chien, so little dog, which would be a very descriptive thing, except the dress that it describes is just music note patterned. There are no dogs. Huh. Well, huh. <laughs> fashion naming conventions. And I love, especially when they go off the rails. Choices were made. <laughs> well, remember, this is a fashion where the main brands at this point are named Angelic Pretty, Baby the Stars Shine Bright, Metamorphose Tempts to Fill, Mwamwam Watier, and many others. The ones that are reportedly in French are almost incomprehensible. Uh, the other ones don't also make all that much sense. But those are what become some of the major brands. I would love to at some point play a game of progressive metal album title or... <laughs> Harajuku fashion leather. <laughs> Harajuku fashion store name. I feel like there's a lot of potential for that. Because Funeral Procession of Rose Aria Blooming in the Twilight sounds a lot like my band, the band I'm going to make's next hit album. <laughs> well, it doesn't help that sometimes it's the same people naming them. Because of the Visual K connection. Ah. Because of the Visual K connection. So you've got the brand Moitier, but also the bands Malice Miser and Moi Dis Moi, all associated with the same person. Magnificent. None of which make a bit of sense in French. <laughs> so this is where we really get into the collectible element of it. So now we've got a bunch of brands, some bigger than others, but those core ones that I mentioned are some of the most universally popular. And they're making specific named pieces that are highly identifiable. You can take a look at a dress with pancakes on it and know that that's honey cake. You can take a look at a whale print and know that it's a whale dress. Sometimes it's a little harder to tell. There's about 50 different chocolate prints, all of which have very similar names. And I've seen people do trivia guessing games at events to try to name the chocolate print that is being shown. <laughs> oh, that's fun. I like that. But now we get into, it's really a collectible now because there are these specific pieces and people have their dream dress, which is usually a print. Of course, there's still plenty of non-print pieces that are coming out but they're not really the main focus of the fashion anymore. So at this point, the fashion has a jumper skirt or one-piece dress, so either a, a strap dress or a dress with sleeves. If it's a strap dress, then it's got a blouse underneath it. It's usually knee length. There's usually a pretty puffy petticoat underneath it, and that's one of the main defining features. If it doesn't have a puffy petticoat underneath it, it's probably not a Lolita dress. Over-the-knee socks or tights, often with a pattern on them. Some sort of big headgear, usually a bow, a beret, a historically inspired hat, a fascinator shaped like a cake or a teacup, anything you can fit on your head. There's one memorable time when one brand put a model down a runway with a baguette on her head. <laughs> yes! Yes! Fashion! And there's three main sub-styles. Sweet. The most popular brand for Sweet is Angelic Pretty, but also Baby the Stars Shine Bright and Metamorphose Tempts to Fill. It's a lot of pastels, but not always. It's also bright reds, and sometimes there's black versions of the prints. Prints with food, animals, anything sort of in that range. They tend to be very whimsical. Then you get Classical, which is the most historically inspired. The prints are a little less common. Often it would be more inspired by historical 
upholstery or wallpaper or stripes. So the popular colors are brown, navy, burgundy, cream, striped, grandmother's floral couch. Some of the more over-the-top looks have 18th century inspiration, and this is the interesting thing. You'll often hear a lot of people say that the fashion is inspired by Rococo fashion. It's not. It's inspired by Victorian and other 19th century fashions. It's only in the last few years that it's come back around to incorporate 18th century influenced pieces. Oh, finally. I trace a lot of it back to bad historical costuming, giving everyone a bad sense of what actual 18th century costumes look like, and sort of just associating old-fashioned looking in one lump item. But yeah, so it's sort of come back around and you can actually get Rococo-inspired dresses now, even though they aren't the original fashion inspiration for the style. So the main brands for that are Victorian Maiden and Innocent World, and a bunch of other ones, of course, but those are some of the big name ones. And then, of course, there's Gothic Lolita. It's sometimes similar to Western goth, but it's not always. It keeps the same basic shape. Often it's black, but not always. Sometimes it's just as pastel as some of the sweet pieces, but instead of being cats having a tea party, it's a bunch of coffins or a full vampire scene where a vampire is standing over someone who's fainted on a couch with rose petals everywhere or lots of crosses on everything with some random chandeliers thrown in. Yes to both. All of the above. I would like to purchase both. Where can I find? (laughs) Well, you're in luck because the random crosses and chandeliers one is probably the most over-re-released piece in Lolita history. Oh, so I can find one secondhand. You can find one secondhand for a very reasonable price, and I'll get into where you can do that in just a bit. Amazing. Hell yeah. But maybe a knee-length dress isn't really for you. And I should add that it's not necessarily an all-women fashion. One of the main influences in the fashion, Mana identifies as a man. And so it's a fairly open space. And there are plenty of people who identify as men who wear Lolita dresses. But there's also other fashions that go along with it if maybe dresses and skirts aren't really your thing. There's Oji, which means prince, but it's come to mean this fashion with a waistcoat or coat and breeches, shorts, or trousers. Looks range from solid-colored Victorian dandy to pumpkin pants with the same wild prints as the dresses. Elegant Gothic aristocrat, which is another thing inspired by Mana. Ankle-length hems, long-flowing voluminous skirts or pants, long-tailored coats, and a lot of androgyny. So now you want to collect it. Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, now you have to beware of replicas. Oh, oh no. Replicas are a huge problem. There's one company in particular called Milano, which is notorious for making replicas of prints from the major brands. And they have, over time, operated under dozens of different names. And there's a lot of replicas floating around. So keep your eyes open. Sometimes it's hard to tell, but there are great resources like Low Library, which is a website dedicated to archiving almost all of the Lolita designs and dresses and items that are released. And you can compare it to the listing there to see if you're getting the real thing or not. So the major Japanese brands tend to be expensive. So a main piece will range from usually about $250 to $500 for one of the big name brands. They do over-the-top made-to-orders sometimes. Those can go up to $1,000 or $2,000 for the special sets. Trying to buy directly from them often involves online bloodbaths. Oh dear. The new item is released at a certain time. 
It sells out in a minute while your computer crashes. There are a bunch of indie brands now as well. So they have a range of prices from just as expensive as the big name brands to under $50 for a dress. So a good price range there. The only thing is that those are usually sold as pre-order. So you get them and then you wait a couple of months and then you get the piece. Oh, okay. So it's a bit easier for them because that way, if they don't sell as many pieces, they don't have a bunch of stock just sitting there. No waste, no fuss. So maybe you don't want to deal with all of that and you want to get secondhand. There's a huge secondhand market for Lolita fashion. Probably the biggest and easiest to use for people in the U.S. or in Europe is Lace Market, which is an online auction site with a buy it now option. It's Lolita specific. It's fairly easy to use, but again, it's an auction site like eBay, so it's people selling directly to people. So keep your eyes out. Sometimes you'll get things that are marked for higher than they should be. Look up the original price of the pieces on the library. Look at what that piece is sold for. Just keep an eye on it. Sometimes you can find really great deals there, though, when someone's trying to get rid of something that's been in their closet for a while and doesn't fit or doesn't match with their current aesthetic. Then you've got Closet Child, which has many different Harajuku street fashions, including some of the ones mentioned at the beginning. So if you want some Fairy K stuff or some Otome stuff, Closet Child is probably a better bet than any of the other ones on this list. It tends to also be pretty cheap, but sometimes the product photos are bad, sometimes really bad, and sometimes the pieces are mislabeled. And it's not necessarily the friendliest user interface if you don't speak Japanese. There is a translation option. It's not always the easiest. And then there's Wonder Wealth, which is a bit more expensive than Closet Child usually, but it's a much more user-friendly website, and it also has a section where you can buy new from many brands. So if you want to get one nice new piece and then a bunch of second-hand pieces to go along with it, you can do it all in one order and get them all shipped at once. So the prices vary greatly for used items based on rarity and demand, as with any collectible. The cheapest I've gotten a big-name brand main piece is an old-school Metamorphose jumper skirt for about $35, but that's really unusual. A lot of the times you'll see the main pieces go for about $100 on the cheap end to about $500 for particularly sought-after pieces, so sometimes they will be more second-hand than they were new. The largest increase from new to second-hand piece started out as about a $300 item and now sells for about $1,200, but is almost never seen. And of course, that's one of the most iconic goth designs, the Iron Gate design from Wamamwatiye. Oh, I know that one. Yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately, there will also almost certainly never be a re-release of that one. Sometimes brands do do re-releases of their more iconic pieces. Unfortunately, the files for that got lost. Oh, no. So there will never be another re-release unless someone does a high-quality scan of an existing version of it. And since they are so rare and so expensive, the chances of that happening are not necessarily the highest. Oh, no. I loved Iron Gate. There are some similar designs. There's a lot of architectural prints out there. But the iconic Iron Gate one, you better be prepared to pay at least $1,200 and to wait for years. Oh, man. And then when it is listed, it will sell out in a minute. Yeah. Ah, boy. (laughs) But maybe clothing isn't really your thing. Maybe you want to have something from the fashion 
But you don't want something that you're actually going to be wearing. I am intrigued by this possibility. So of course the magazines that we've been talking about are a big part of this. You can collect old fruits magazines or old Kara or the Gothic and Lolita Bible or the sewing magazines, Otome no Sewing and some of the older sewing ones. But the brands have also released non-clothing items sometimes. So teacups with the prints on them. Some other miscellaneous things ranging from tissue cases to pillows to probably the strangest item ever released by a Harajuku fashion brand and not by the brand that I would have ever expected to release it. So Victorian Maiden, which is best known for doing sort of simple, classic, historically inspired, lots of browns and stripes pieces, released a coffin at one point. Just like a whole coffin? Just like a full life-size coffin. Yes, please! I'd be lying if I said I wasn't intrigued. Unfortunately, you're not going to be able to find it. It was horrendously expensive to start with, and there were never that many of them. And the strange thing is they're not one of the goth brands. Oh. They're not a gothic Lolita brand. They're a classic Lolita brand. Okay. (laughs) One of the major gothic Lolita brands, Swami Moitier, used to have coffin-shaped dressing rooms in their main store. Oh. But... They weren't the ones who released the coffin that you could just buy. Instead, it's a brand that almost never does prints, almost never does gothic pieces, and is sort of living happily in the realm of grandmother's couch most of the time. Except for when they're in a coffin. Except for when it's a coffin. But probably the most collectible non-clothing item is stuffed animal bags based on brand mascots. Uh, of course. Oh, yes. So I'm not sure if you ever had one of those stuffed animals that had a zipper in the back when you were a kid. Yes. So those are very popular and often they come with straps so they function as either backpacks or purses. So a lot of the major brands have iconic animals that they use in a lot of different prints and become mascots. So for Angelic Pretty, you've got Lyrical Bunny and Milky Chan the Fawn. More recently, Captain Chris the Pirate Wolf for the brand Alice and the Pirates. Aww. But the oldest and most highly sought after of these mascots, and the one that started the whole mascot brand craze, is Usakumiya. Now, Usakumiya has a backstory. There was a cartoon released that told the story, and so there's a bear, and everyone's scared of this bear, and he's so sad that everyone's afraid of him that he starts crying and cries so much that his eyes turn red. Oh. And then a person who wears the fashion stumbles across the sobbing bear and makes him a little bonnet with bunny ears on it to make him look cute so he won't be as scary. And then, of course, the bear with the bunny ear bonnet becomes this iconic representation of the brand Baby the Stars Shine Bright. (laughs) Wow. And they have released many different versions of this bear. Sometimes with the rabbit ears, sometimes as kumakumia or bear bear with bear ears, sometimes in outfits, sometimes with just a ribbon around its neck, sometimes as a backpack, sometimes as a dismembered head coin pouch. Oh. The main pieces, the larger ones with straps and storage space, usually start at about $100. If they're particularly rare, they go up from there. Returning back to the crying teddy bear for a moment, I am put in mind of the Stife Titanic Morning Bear, D. I don't know if you remember. Oh, that is very, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't made that connection. Yeah, and it's not even a terribly sad or haunted looking teddy bear. 
it looks like a regular teddy bear. And if you didn't know the story, you wouldn't ever know that there's this horrible, tragic, dark side to this teddy bear with bunny ears. <laughs> Some versions even don't have red eyes. Well, that's just cheating. Yeah, I've always preferred the red eye ones because at least keep to the original story. Yeah, I want the history of Usakumiya. Yes. So that's some of the basics about the fashion and where it is today. There's also a very active international community for it. In pretty much every major city, there is at least one group, possibly more than one group, that do regular meetups, at least in more normal times, and do all sorts of activities, including tea parties, going to museums, picnics, all sorts of events. And it's a big social thing, too. So it's a fashion, it's a collectible, it's a social thing, all at the same time. What can't it do? It can't do historical accuracy most of the time. Well, <laughs> you know, that's, that's a lot to ask, it seems. <laughs> Although lately there's been a trend of a couple of the indie brands releasing very expensive made-to-order historical portrait replicas. Oh, oh. my god, yes. Hell yes that run for several thousand dollars. They're not always historically accurate, but they do look elaborate. Have they done the blue boy, though? Because I feel like that would be extremely on-brand for a lot of these. They have not done the blue boy, to the best of my knowledge. They have, however, done the Elizabeth Star portrait gown. Oh! Oh! Well, that's no small feat. As well as the Madame de Pompadour green and pink dress. Oh, shit, yeah. Well, I'm surprised they haven't just run straight through the Madame de Pompadour like everything she's ever been painted in. Well, this is a fairly new phenomenon. It's only been happening in the past five years or so. Oh, so they'll get there. The first one was the Elizabeth Star portrait gown. The Madame de Pompadour one has only been out for a year or two. Oh. And again, they're not actually fully historically accurate, but those ones are much more historically inspired than the usual ones. Also ten times the price. Well. So... Those are really the main basics. It's a fun fashion. And of course, there's all the other ones as well. There don't really tend to be as big international communities for things like Decora or Morike, but they still are there. And it's still worth looking to see if there's a group in your area if you're interested in one of the other ones. So fashion that started out using a lot of actual vintage pieces now really doesn't use any vintage pieces at all or it's very unusual if they do, but it's gotten more and more historically inspired over time. And the historical inspirations have gotten older and older. So it's a bit of a weird phenomenon. Yeah. Wow. I would like a return to repurpose vintage works myself. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I think you sh- we should all get involved, I mean, if you're into it, and start talking about repurposing vintage pieces. Well, at this point, a lot of the older pieces are vintage in their own right. That's true. <laughs> It's a fashion that's been around in some form since the 70s, so... Although the 70s pieces are almost never available nowadays. And when they are, they're very different from what the fashion looks like today. I just like a good upcycle. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about an older piece, you're talking about early 2000s now. That tie-in with the movie Kamikaze Girls look. So 2004-ish is what's considered old school. You can get pieces from older than that, but it's a lot less common. Okay. So out of curiosity, are you involved in like the community aspect of this yourself? Yeah, I've participated in events both in New York and in London where I used to live. 
And it's a really great way of meeting people if you move to a new place. You all get together, do something fun while wearing a very interesting fashion, get random people on the street looking, which is annoying, but unavoidable. And it's a really great way of making new friends. So maybe you're a good person to uh, dismantle a, a pernicious rumor that I constantly see floating around uh, when people are interested in getting started in this kind of thing. Is it as elitist as people think when they do a rough Google of it? It's a tough question because there's a very defined aesthetic for the fashion. Something either is or is not in line with Lolita fashion. And it's very obvious to people who've been in the fashion for a long time whether something is or is not actually a Lolita piece. So the general rule of thumb, if it fits the silhouette and has the right aesthetic to go with it, then it's probably okay but avoid replicas. If you're not wearing a petticoat, you should not skip a petticoat, especially when you're just starting out, because that's such a defining feature of the look. Makes sense. And there's plenty of less expensive, perfectly good indie brands and secondhand places available now. So maybe don't start trying to wear the fashion by trying to get something that sort of looks vaguely similar at your nearest mall. Do a little bit of research online, find a secondhand piece that you like, and get started with that, and you won't get any bad looks. I'm not really hearing that it's not elitist. <laughs> There's a lot of pushback because a lot of times people do think, oh, I like this fashion. I'll go and get something for it from H&M and wear it to an event. And that just doesn't work. It's a different look, and it doesn't really fit with the silhouette. So do your research. Yeah. If you do your research and are open to learning what the fashion is about, then by all means, go ahead. And it's not as elitist as people think in that sense. This is my experience in doll communities, but I feel like it's pretty similar where a lot of the times you get this like elitist label slapped on communities that have to be a little more protective to keep out stuff like with dolls specifically, you don't want any like fakes or copies or recasts. And it seems like in Lolita, you really don't want any... Uh, sorry, what did you call them? The fakes? Replicas. Replicas, yeah. Yeah, and there was an, a period of time when the easiest way of getting your first Lolita dress was to go online, get something from a random cheap website that turned out to be another Milano cover, get something in the mail that looked nothing like the picture in the listing, which was probably stolen from a real Lolita brand, and then you wear it to your first event thinking, oh, I'm wearing this fashion and it's a replica. And usually a bad replica at that. And that sort of annoyed all of the people who were more established in the fashion and created a lot of tension. But nowadays it's easier than ever to find the real stuff. Lace market is a great starting point. And it doesn't need to be expensive. You can get a perfectly good dress for 35 to $50 if you do your research and look for it carefully enough. And honestly, you're not going to get a nice piece from even a more mainstream fashion brand for any less than that. Or could you take the patterns out of one of the pattern magazines and make your own? That's something that I would say, if you're good at sewing and you are comfortable sewing, definitely. Still, maybe don't do it for your first piece. Get a sense of what the fashion is like first. And if it's the first time you've ever sewed anything, maybe try some other stuff before you make something from the fashion because it's usually very complicated sewing and the magazines usually don't have instructions in English oh so it can be a bit tricky if you're just starting out there are communities um specifically for the patterns where especially like on like subreddits and I think even like dream 
what the whatever journal took over live journal dream width yeah there are communities where people will help you figure out the untranslated patterns yes and there are a lot of very active groups that are specifically about sewing lolita fashion the otome sewing bee is one that's based in london that's really great that does a weekly meetup over zoom and is really great for people who want to start sewing something so there's definitely places to go but maybe don't do that for your first piece if it's your first time ever sewing something, figure out what you're doing first. Because it's not cheaper, and it's not faster, and it's not easier. <laughs> True. But it is extremely satisfying. I was going to say, it might be more creatively fulfilling. Yeah. It's more creatively fulfilling, but a lot of people think that they can make it themselves for cheaper. And you're just not going to get good results with that, because you're going to end up getting bad fabric and bad lace, which is the bane of the fashion's existence. Oh, boy, listen, there isn't a single community on God's green earth that involves lace where bad lace isn't a problem. <laughs> yeah. So, again, it definitely, it's worth hanging out with the sewing communities and learning from them, and it's a lot of fun, and that's absolutely a valid way of enjoying the fashion. But do your research first. As long as you put in the effort, it's pretty welcoming. It's just people get tired of answering the same questions over and over again. There's a lot of archives and forums. Read through some archives first, see if there's an answer to your question. Don't just demand people tell you whether something is or is not a part of the fashion if there's a question asking the same thing from three months ago. So, yeah. I mean, there's even communities specifically designed for people who are first getting into the fashion where you can get advice and help. So, it's a great place to start. So, there's a high initial buy-in cost... And you can't ask questions, and you can't make it yourself, and if you show up to the meetup wearing the wrong thing, you'll be shunned, but it's not elitist. <laughs> well, it's not actually that high a buy-in cost, necessarily. If you go to the second-hand sites, I've gotten main pieces for $35. Okay, that's that's a little more reasonable. Yeah, it can be a reasonable buy-in. Yeah, I, I'm on Lace Market right now, actually. If you are patient and you buy from a second-hand site or from one of the less expensive independent brands, you can absolutely put together a full look with fabulous accessories for under $100. Okay. And the, the beginner community seem like a great place to ask questions that you might be intimidated to ask somewhere else. Like, And there are specific beginner areas. Yeah, if they're, if they're looking at beginners, they're going to be like, all right, we're going to get some repeat questions. That's okay. Yeah, the Big Sisters of Lolita Fashion Forum is specifically designed to answer questions. Okay. That sounds fun. And that way it sort of keeps some of the main community chats free from the same question every two days. Because people always have the same questions. So having one area that's specifically for those questions helps keep everything running smoothly for everyone. So people get some askance looks if they post questions that really should go there in just a generic fashion chat. Got it. So it's all about asking questions in the appropriate channels. Yeah, and you can absolutely start participating in the forums as soon as you want, but maybe wait to go to an event until you have a piece. It doesn't have to be an expensive piece or an elaborate piece. Do you mind if I ask you one of those questions that probably everyone gets absolutely constantly? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, what is the deal? What's the deal with um, plus size with Harajuku fashion? Okay, so it used to be very bad, but it's getting better now. Love to hear that. So it used to be that the main brands make one size. It is size small. Oof. If you do not fit into that size, then you don't wear the piece. 
However, things have changed a lot since the 90s and early 2000s. The fashion has always incorporated a lot of shirring in the designs from an aesthetic sense. So even some of those older pieces, you can get pieces from 2000 that have completely shirred bodices, and then the skirts are very loose. And those ones will fit a really wide range of sizes. And over time, almost all of the brands have started incorporating a significant amount of shirring, so a pretty wide range of size fitting for each of their different pieces. And again, that's not great, but more recently, brands have started introducing multiple sizes, especially brands like Metamorphose Temps to Fill. Nowadays, it's got a really good, fairly inclusive size range. I mean, it still does two sizes, but they're constructed in such a way that they work for a very wide range of bodies. Also, the independent brands that I've been talking about, some of them are just as good quality and just as nice, and nowadays just as highly sought after and respected as the big name brands. And a lot of those do significantly larger size ranges, and some of them even do made-to-order pieces Ooh. for custom sizing. So the independent brands often will do a minimum of five sizes for their pieces. And again, read the measurements for the pieces. A lot of the times the measurements will be in centimeters because they're using metric. So just figure out what your measurements are in centimeters. They usually give a range of sizes that it fits. And usually you can find something that'll fit you no matter who you are. There's also a pretty big community where people will tailor the pieces to fit them. So maybe you really like a piece and it's one of those ones that only comes in size small. There are ways of tailoring that to fit you if you don't fit size small. And a lot of people will do that. A lot of the dresses come with waist ties that are detachable and basically function as extra bits of fabric with whatever print the dress has. So there are people who will take those waist ties and use them to make extra panels in dresses. Oh. Or take apart the dress and re-sew everything with smaller seam allowances. Or in some cases get a matching skirt and use the fabric from the skirt to change the dress. Okay, so a lot of creative workarounds. A lot of creative work. And again, that's the sort of thing where a lot of people will take it to a professional tailor to get that work done, so they keep the same quality. A lot of people will also do it themselves, but for something like that, know what your sewing skills are. There's probably a professional tailor in your area who's willing to do that sort of work. And it's probably pretty, like, a lot cheaper than you're thinking. I've had a lot of things professionally tailored, yeah. and it was extremely affordable. It's not as bad as you'd think. And your tailor will love you forever. Exactly. And there may even be a tailor in your area who's already done similar work for other people in the fashion. Ask around on a forum if someone knows a good tailor for the fashion on the communities, and that's not a question that would get scoffed at, and you'll probably get a bunch of answers. <laughs> We're here to bring two things back to Harajuku fashion. We're here we're reclaiming vintage pieces and empowering tailors all around. <laughs> That's my mission. <laughs> so it sort of has that sort of veneer of elitism. It's actually pretty similar to the doll collecting community from what I've seen of that. There's been a big problem historically with fakes and replicas and reproductions and recasts. And the community sort of seized up against that and also you've got the added factor here of having a lot of people see the name and think it's something that it isn't so there have been a bunch of problems over the years with people who think it's a sexual fashion thing yep yeah and try to go to events and 
don't let that put it off from you. It doesn't happen that often. And usually it's stopped before it can happen because usually to get into the groups, they want you to show that you actually know what the fashion is. Obviously, the beginner-focused ones won't have as stringent things as some of the other ones. Usually by stringent, they mean, can you name an actual brand from the fashion? Do you have any piece from the fashion? If not, are you planning to get one? Something like that. Just as a way of filtering out anyone who's there because they think, oh, I want to do something fetishy. Keep that separate. Don't involve it in the fashion, especially since it's a fashion that's open to people of all ages. It's a fashion that's open to people of all genders and sexualities. It tends to be fairly inclusive. Anyone can wear the fashion. Just don't do it in a creepy way. Right on. People who are at events at a museum or going to tea aren't there to be objects of sexual desire, especially in a fashion with a history of being a movement against sexualized clothing. Yeah. So yeah, those are the basics. It's fun. You get prints with all sorts of really ridiculous names. If you ever want a dress with, I don't know, uh, chocolate, ducks, (laughs) vampires, cats that look like hourglasses, mummy bandages with cats playing hide and seek. Oh my god, that sounds so cute. (laughs) Mermaids, sometimes a chipmunk, anything like that, then it's a great fun fashion. Yeah, I actually saw a lot of crossover with one of my uh, carousel groups, which, yeah, that's a thing I'm into. Yes. Where people got really excited because there's a bunch of Lolita dresses that specifically have carousel horses on them. Yes. One of the most iconic designs of all time is Sugary Carnival, which is a carousel made out of candy. Oh, now I want that one. (laughs) You're in luck. There was very recently a re-release, so there's a lot of pieces floating around. I'm going to Lace Market right now. All right. Well, thank you so much for telling us all about Harajuku fashion, Sarah. Thank you for having me. I'm all excited about fashion again. Where can we find your work on the internet? You can find my Etsy at Helcombe Designs. And that's it for the moment. So thank you again for having me. And it's been great. Hell yeah. Can't wait to have you back. Thanks for sharing with us. Yeah. If you'd like to recommend an episode topic or just say hello, you can contact us at antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com or through our Facebook group, Antiques Freaks Friends, or tag us on Tumblr, antiquesfreaks.tumblr.com. If you would like to get yourself some fine vintage goods or some merch with the podcast logo on it, you can check out our Etsy at etsy.com slash shop slash antiquesfreaks. And if you would like to listen to bonus content such as deleted scenes or our chapter-by-chapter reading of the Penny Dreadful Varney the Vampire, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks. Special shout-out to our current patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. And thank you in particular for listening. Au revoir!